Our text this morning is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So you can make your way there if you would like. But I want to start where I began when we started the book of John the first week in December. And that's at the end of the book where John stated his purpose for writing this account of the life of Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus performed many other signs, keep that word in mind, many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. If you ask how many other signs did he do, then You would see over in chapter 21, verse 25, John wrote there in the last verse of the book, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Going back to chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, this is him writing at the end of the book, these have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. This morning's passage in the first 11 verses of John chapter 2 is John's record of the first sign. Did you hear it at the end of the book? John said, I've written about these signs that Jesus did. This morning's passage is his writing about the first sign. That is the first miracle Jesus did to prove and to reveal that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. To reveal that he was Lord and Savior. This weekend our young people have had the theme for D now of rooted. That's where we're rooted. As we understand who Jesus is. And in all of these things that he did, he was revealing that. He was pointing to that. What we find in this passage is the first thing Jesus did publicly to lead people to believe in Him so that they could receive eternal life. And it was His miracle of turning water into wine. And I've heard corny jokes about turning water into wine, but I'll spare you the corny jokes this morning, okay? Let's read about the miracle beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me? Woman, Jesus asked, 
My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are four things that I want you to notice in this story of the first sign. The first thing I want us to notice is the setting of this first sign that Jesus did demonstrating that he was Lord and Savior. The setting And the setting for it is established in the first couple of verses of the passage. Uh, We see in those first couple of verses that the setting of this first sign was at a wedding. It says in verse 1 that this was on the third day. And third day here references uh, the third day after the events that were last recorded in chapter 1. Jesus' encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. We also learn in verses 1 and 2 that this wedding was attended by Jesus' mother. And I want you to note that John never refers to Mary by her name. But only as the mother of Jesus. We'll come back to the significance of that later on. It was also attended by Jesus and his disciples. So maybe we can infer that this was a family wedding or friends' wedding. In either case, uh, weddings in the ancient world were big deals. I mean, really big deals. And, And we would say that weddings today are big deals, and they are. They were really big deals in the ancient world. They were really big deals in the Jewish culture. You ever been to a long wedding? Have you ever been to a week-long wedding? It wasn't uncommon for Jewish weddings to last a whole week. Can you imagine how worn out those that were throwing the wedding had to be at the end of that week? It was a long event. It was a serious event. I, I don't simply mean serious in the sense that everybody acted serious all the time, but that it was taken seriously in this culture It was a fun event, an event filled with joy. 
It was basically like a big week-long party or celebration. And it was a social event. It was the place to be. It was a place for family and for friends and for neighbors and community to celebrate as a whole. I want you to think about what Jesus' being here teaches us about Jesus. What Jesus choosing the event of a wedding for His first public miracle teaches us about Him. For one, I think it would indicate to us Jesus' approval of marriage. And it only makes sense that Jesus would approve marriage because He was God. And God is the one who, before He instituted anything else, instituted marriage. Marriage is a good thing. It's a God thing. It's a holy thing. And boy, we need to pray for marriage today, don't we? I mean, everybody's aware of the whole same-sex marriage issue and how it's even made its way to, to our own state. And that is a reason that we need to be in prayer for marriage. But there are reasons that we've gotten to this point. There are things even that those within the church, and and we're all a part of it and sharing the blame, have done to devalue marriage. It's not just same-sex marriage that's a problem. Uh, Divorce is a problem. It devalues marriage. And for those of you that have been a part of that, look, I'm not uh, casting you with a big scarlet D on your chest that you never can be forgiven or anything like that. Uh, Promiscuous sex before marriage devalues marriage. Adultery devalues marriage. Yesterday, young people, I did a funeral service for a man in our church. He and his wife had been married for 64 years. That stresses the importance of marriage. That was Paul Gunner and Betty Gunner. And let me see if the ones I'm about to speak of are back there. I can't see real good today. Mr. Pete and Miss Nell Black celebrated 63 years of marriage this week. Thank you for those examples. This certainly indicates Jesus' approval of marriage and the the value of it. I think it would also teach us that Jesus was social, right? That Jesus liked being around people. And not just that, because he was invited that people liked having Jesus around. That they could have a good time and not be uncomfortable with having Jesus there. And inviting Jesus to the occasion. I think it indicates to us that Jesus was fun. That he liked having fun. That he liked being around people that were having fun. That was one of the complaints about Jesus from his enemies, was it not? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And they compared him to John the Baptist who came before him. Who they got onto him because he was recluse. 
I think it teaches us that to impact people, we must be among people. The people of the world. We can't separate ourselves off in little communities and live among ourselves and hope to impact the world for Jesus. That wasn't the way that Jesus operated. He was among the sinners. He was around them, impacting them. Also, I think that we learn that we must love them as we're among them. Listen to me. People do not care how much we know until they know how much we care. This was a charge that could never be brought against Jesus. As I was reading through various things this week, I found a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I'd underlined a long, long time ago. And Spurgeon wrote, I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. Hard to be a sourpuss. Be a great soul winner. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. So the setting was at a wedding. We also notice here that the setting was in Galilee. Y'all are going to like this. It was in Cana of Galilee to be exact. Cana's mentioned here because this is where Nathaniel, who was a character at the end of chapter 1, was Cana of Galilee. It mentions that in verse 1 and it mentions it in verse 11. Now, Paula can't answer. Miss Stacy can't answer. But anybody else, when something is stated at the beginning of a passage or a story and then at the end of the passage or the story in literature, what is that called? Don't all rush to tell me. It's called an inclusio. And it's an interpretive clue. Paula, by the way, I remember my English teacher teaching me that. An inclusio. It's an interpretive clue. When it mentions it at the beginning and mentions it again at the end, it's indicating to us that there's something important in that, that it being in Cana of Galilee is significant for us. Well, what's the significance? Galilee was the lowest socio-economic region in all of Israel. The rest of the nation of Israel looked down on the region of Galilee as being uneducated, redneck, backwards, a bunch of hicks. They probably made jokes about the people of Galilee, that their family trees were a straight line or something like that. By the way, Randy, that's what us folks in Alabama say about West Virginia, and I know y'all probably say that about us too. Us us folks that get made fun of that way, we've got to find somebody else to make fun of, don't we? It's like the South, right? The American South. Folks from Galilee even talk different than the rest of the people of Israel. They talk funny. They talk slow. They were made fun of. They talked as funny as I do. You remember the account of Peter when he was denying Jesus? What gave him away as being a follower of Jesus? It was his accent. He probably said, oh, I don't know Jesus. I've never met him. Jesus came first to the poor and to the weak. The despised, the ignorance. Remember 
the first people that heard the news of the birth of Jesus, who were they? Shepherds. That is not insignificant. Jesus came to people like this. He chose this as his first place to publicly do a miracle because he was one of them. Think about that for significance. Jesus chose to come as a person like this from this area of the nation of Israel. And it's a reminder to us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which says, Consider our own calling unto salvation, that God has not chosen many that were wise or powerful or noble, but instead God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the insignificant and the despised. And we must be careful not to leave people like this out. Or to look down on people like this. One thing that should keep us from doing that is everybody else in the world thinks all of us are that kind of people. So that's the setting. Second, I want you to notice the performance of this first sign. And we find it in verses 3 through 8, the performance of the first sign Jesus did this miracle because they had run out of wine. And that doesn't sound like much to us. Because if we did run out of anything to drink, what would we do? We'd just go get some. Even on a Sunday, we could go ride and get some. Whatever it is. But in their culture, you couldn't ride down to the local Galilee 7-Eleven and get you some boxed wine to bring back to the wedding celebration. So it was a big deal to run out of wine. For one, it would have been considered irresponsible. The groom was responsible for having enough refreshments for the entire length of the wedding ceremony for all those that had come. Because look, all those that had come were giving him and his bride wedding gifts. And in return, it was expected that they'd be fed good. And that there'd be plenty to drink. And that they'd have a good time. It also would have been considered inhospitable. And rude. And these Middle Eastern cultures, in a way that maybe no other culture in the world does, emphasizes hospitality. So it would have been a terrible thing to have appeared this way, not caring for guests, not looking out for them. This also would have been terribly embarrassing. You know what a faux pas is? Now don't ask me to spell it. In the South, how would we pronounce it? Falls, palks, or something like that? This would have been an awful social faux pas that would have remained a stigma on this entire family for the rest of their lives. I mean, every conversation after this would have included, that's the family who ran out of wine at their wedding celebration. They're the irresponsible ones, the rude ones, the inhospitable ones. 
This is terribly surprising to us, but this also could have been considered illegal. Lawsuits had been brought in Jewish culture by guests at weddings where the supplies had run out. It was like those who were putting on the wedding had failed on their end of the contract. At the very least, this would have been considered a crime against fun. A crime against joy. Because to the Jews, wine was synonymous with having a good time. And for it to run out meant the good times were coming to an end. But in spite of all of that, and look, the groom may have been irresponsible. He may have been inconsiderate and rude and hospitable. He may have done something illegal. He may have been a cosmic killjoy. But from God's perspective, this wasn't an accident. You get where I'm going? All of that may have been going on, but God had something to do with this too because it was setting the stage for His Son to announce His public presence. Have you ever done anything irresponsible? Everybody with me? I saw three people shake their heads that they had done something irresponsible in their lives. You bunch of big fat liars. I'm going to have 200 people shaking their head in just a minute. You ever been rude? Inconsiderate? You ever done something that was embarrassing to you? You ever broken the law? <laughs> People looking around before they shake their hands on me. We all have. And I'm not saying that it's not our responsibility and not our fault. But I have a comforting thought from this passage. Did you know even behind all of our mess-ups is a sovereign God who works even through them for His purposes? And that's a great encouragement to me. Because I'm irresponsible and embarrassing and all of these other things. God lets stuff like this happen for a reason. And the reason is to display His glory. Speaking of the performance of this first sign... I want you to see that it was in obedience to God the Father. You may be wondering, well, where does the Father appear in this? Well, He's implied. I really state it this way, that it's in obedience to God the Father, because I want to contrast it with what may appear to be the case. This miracle was not done by Jesus in obedience to Mary. That's what's clear here. It was done in obedience to his father. And again, 
John does not refer to Mary as Mary. He refers to her as Jesus' mother. None of this is by coincidence. What then does that indicate? My sister used to complain that everywhere she went, she was known as Micah's sister. Micah's little sister. She didn't have a great attitude about it. Now, why would that be a bother to her? Because it was like her identity was in me, right? Whenever you speak of someone in that way, you are identifying them by the person that you name as possessing them. And that's exactly what John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing here. He is saying that Jesus does not get his significance from Mary, but it's the other way around. That Mary's identity, as is the case for everyone who follows Jesus, our identity is tied up in Jesus. Our significance is derived from Him, not the other way around. Now I want to show you why I would say that this was done in obedience to the Father. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him. Now maybe this indicates that she was working in the fellowship hall. Had a special job on that day. Maybe it indicates she just knew. And she tells Jesus they don't have any wine. And with that statement, there's the expectation from Mary that Jesus is going to do something about it, right? Notice who's not mentioned in this story. Joseph. In fact, Joseph, his last mention is the occasion when Jesus was about 12 and he got separated from mom and dad, spending time with the religious leaders back in Jerusalem. This is probably an indication to us that Joseph is now dead by this point. So Jesus has become to Mary more than just a son, but the man that she looks to. She expects him to do something. Jesus' response is very surprising. Maybe even scandalous to our modern ears. In verse 4, Jesus says, What has this concern of yours to do with me? Woman. Now you think, if I called my mom a woman... She'd claw my eyeballs out. Woman has a little different sound to us, and that's not the literal word, but the translators are doing the best they can. I'll tell you a better word that would indicate the word that he's using. It's not woman. In our culture, the word would be ma'am. So it's not rude. It's not impolite. But it's also typically not what he would call his mother. He was purposely not addressing her as mother. He was using a more formal address to her. Like he would an ordinary woman, but not his mother. Why then would he do it this way? Because in some way Jesus is communicating to Mary 
that you may think you have some pull on my life and telling me what to do because you're my mother. But you should no longer see me as merely your son, but as your Savior. And I operate on a different agenda. I'm not simply here to do your will. I'm here to do my Father's will. And over and over again, that's repeated in the life of Jesus and the records of His life. When He says, what has this concern of yours to do with me? Jesus is saying, uh, your interests are not my interest. Again, my interests are, are from a higher perspective. And look, it's helpful for some of us to remember that sometime. The things that we're interested in, Jesus may have no interest in at all. Probably ought to change our interest, shouldn't we? And then Jesus says at the end of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. And that's a phrase he repeated over and over again. It was always talking about the hour of his crucifixion and his glorification. And as for what that has to do with his response to Mary to help him, maybe Mary is thinking, Jesus, this is the perfect time for you to show everybody who you really are. Just let it all hang out and show them. But Jesus, again, is indicating, I'm on a different timetable than you are, Mary. And if I do something here, it won't be because of your timing, but because of my Father's timing. And though He would... Uh, give a glimpse to His glory. He would not do it in such a way as everybody would unmistakably get it or see it. I also want you to see about the performance of this first sign that it was in obedience to Jesus. Verses 5 through 8, quickly. So Mary turns around and she has wonderful words here. Do whatever He tells you. And just keep that with you. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Obey Him. She's pointing them, pointing us to obedience to her son, Jesus, the Savior. Verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. That means that they washed their hands in these. They were big on washing hands. Not just for practical reasons, but... Ritual reasons as well. They had to wash cups and plates. You know, when you go to a buffet, you can't carry the same plate up there twice. Sort of the same deal here. Washing cups and plates and glasses and things like that. Each of them contained 20 to 30 gallons of water used for this. So there's a lot going on here. Between 120 and 180 gallons of liquid possible. Jesus says to those servants... Fill the jars with water. Again, I say this was done in obedience to Jesus. He's giving them a command. Fill the jars with water. Now, at first glimpse, do you think any of the servants thought, is this guy slow? We don't need any more water. We've got plenty of water. We need wine. Does God ever tell us to do anything that may sound strange? Run sort of counterculture to to what we understand? Sure He does. So what are we to do? Whatever He says. 
whatever he says, fill these jars with water. So they did, and they filled it to the brim. And he adds that little detail because it's, it's showing us that this isn't a case where they filled it mostly up and then they poured a little leftover wine in the top and fooled somebody. No, there was no room for anything else to go in there but water. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. So the performance of this first sign was actually turning water to wine. Follow along with me for just a moment. What Jesus did is take nothing and make something. He's the creator, right? He's the creator of more than just wine where there is none, but life where there is none. Jesus took the ordinary water and turned it into something extraordinary. Wine. Jesus took a situation in which there was a shortage and he created a surplus. Did any of you think 180 gallons of wine? What kind of party could drink 180 gallons of wine? Well, I'm guessing they couldn't drink all of that. The couple would have had a nice supply for the rest of their marriage. Quite a a monetary value as well. And also, you see here Jesus taking a situation of judgment. Right? Everybody's judging these folks because they've run out of wine. And he turns judgment into joy. I mean a lot of joy. And all of this is true with Jesus. We are nothing apart from Jesus, but with Him we're something. Jesus can take ordinary us and do extraordinary things. Jesus can take our shortage of whatever it is, peace, joy, confidence in salvation, and He can turn it into a surplus of grace and mercy and joy and all of these things. Jesus can take the judgment that we live in under God and our sin and bring unspeakable joy in our life through Him and with salvation. This shows us the superiority of the new thing that Jesus was doing over the old way, the old covenant, the new covenant better than the old covenant, new wine that represented the gospel teaching better than the old, the new blood of Jesus represented by this wine later on better than the old blood of sacrifices. Well, that brings us to the response to this first sign. Two responses I want you to notice. One is amazement. Verses 9 and 10. When the chief servant, now that's like the caterer or the wedding planner. The chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine. He didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the groom who he answers to. And this guy's going to taste everything and eat everything before it goes out to make sure it's good. He calls the groom over. He's working for him. And he says to him, basically, this is different than every other wedding I've been to. Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. Now, I'm I'm a good Baptist. And I can remember as a boy being taught about this parable. And the main emphasis that I learned is that Jesus turned this into grape juice, not wine. 
And I'm not an advocate of drinking. Don't partake in it myself. But I don't have to do a disservice to the Word of God to believe that way. And teaching like that does a disservice to this passage. It's silly. It's what happens when you believe something before you go to the Bible and you use the Bible to believe up what you, uh, to back up what you already believe. Now, what is the, the, the head guy saying here? There was a reason they would have served the best wine first at parties like this because they would drink freely. And drink freely means they'd get a little under the influence and their palates weren't as refined as they were before they started drinking. So they didn't notice that the quality of the wine had gone down to ripple or shampipple, as Fred Sanford used to call it. They didn't know about that. They didn't notice it. And I'm not getting into the whole alcohol thing today because that's not what this is about. We've talked about it before. His point is, usually they put the good stuff out first, then bring out the worst, but you have saved the best wine until now. And there is a lesson in this for us. One is that Jesus majors in doing the unexpected, right? We have expectations of Jesus, but he's always blowing our expectations out of the water and keep believing that way. And then a second lesson would be that with Jesus and salvation, God always saves the best till last. And I find that especially pertinent in our day where for a couple of years on the top ten bestseller list was a book by the most famous preacher in our country, the title of which was Your Best Life Now, which is a biblical lie. Jesus never promised us our best life now. But He has promised us a, a really good one to come. And this one's good with all of that in mind, Jesus saves the best to last. Isn't that just the opposite of our world? Speaking of alcohol, you watch the alcohol commercials. Do they ever so, show uh, people driving drunk and killing another family? I've never seen one, not from an alcohol commercial. Do they ever show Daddy who's drinking at the bar with his buddies going home and beating his wife and kids? No, they don't ever show that. Do they ever show Daddy not being able to buy groceries because he spent it all at the bar? No, they don't show that. All that this world does is promise us and hold out to us the best right now. But Jesus is offering something far more significant and, and much longer lasting. So he was amazed. But I want you to notice that amazement is not enough. Because the second response that we really get to is belief. In verse 11, it says, as the result of this, his disciples believed in him. Where you're like, well, who are the disciples? The ones that came to the party with him, the wedding with him, right? Peter and Andrew, John probably, Philip and Nathaniel. He's probably got five at this point. You say, well, did they believe in him before? Sure they did. They followed him. 
What then does it mean when it says they believed in Him? Well, it means they kept believing in Him. That their faith in Him progressed. That their faith in Him grew stronger. And both of these things are true of saving faith. Wayne Holly prayed this morning back in my office. Help us all to see that believing is not just a one-time thing. Young people get that. Believing is not a one-time thing. Real belief is an ongoing thing. A progressing thing. A strengthening sort of thing. The disciples got the sign. Any of you play baseball? You ever missed a sign? Your coach is signaling down. You got a runner on third. You're trying to get him in. You've got the squeeze sign on and you miss it. And he gets tagged out at home and the game is over. That's bad. Missing signs is bad. But the disciples, they got the sign. But it's not true of everyone. In fact, most did not get the sign. Notice in this story, there is no indication that anybody believed except the disciples. Everybody saw Jesus do this, and the best they could come up with was amazement. One final thing I want you to see in this first sign, and that's the purpose. Verse 11, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed His glory, and His disciples believed in him. The purpose of this sign indicated by the word itself was to display his glory. A theme of John. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That means that he displayed his power, his deity. His doing this was not merely about doing a miracle. It wasn't about entertaining merely. It wasn't even about helping merely. It was a sign to point to who he was and who he is. This was the first sign, the first reason to believe in Jesus, not miracles. Folks, don't waste your life merely believing in miracles. Believe in Jesus. Have you ever seen something where there was more to it than what you actually saw? More than meets the eye? A sign to something bigger, more significant? That's the case here. Jesus' miracle of turning the water into wine was the first sign among many signs that pointed to the fact that Jesus was Messiah. And that He was the Son of God that pointed to the fact that He is Lord and Savior. And these signs, even this sign today, is still pointing to that fact. Well, listen, if He is Lord and Savior, we must believe on Him. If He is, we must believe on Him. And if we believe on Him, we will receive eternal life. Do you believe on Jesus? Some of you say, I would if he'd show me a sign like that. No, you wouldn't if that's what you're looking for. Because the rest of them didn't. Jesus said on a later occasion, a wicked and adulterous generation is always asking me for a sign. He said, the only sign I'll give to them is the sign of Jonah. Just like he was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, I'll be in the earth three days and three nights and then I'll rise again. That's the only sign that you need. Jesus went on to say, blessed are those who don't see and yet they still believe. Do you believe on Jesus? Are you continuing in your belief, believer? Are you growing in your belief? 
How about this? Do you believe enough today to obey whatever God is leading you to do? Do you? Do you believe enough today to do whatever God is leading you to do? Maybe it's this weekend. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's been going on much longer than that. Do you believe enough to obey whatever God is leading you to do?